You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Investors are stuck in a tug of war. On one side, we have central bankers, which are trying to convince us all that they are serious about inflation and are going to keep hiking rates. And on the other side, bond investors who remain unconvinced. Which side is right and what will it mean for your investments? Hey, everybody, that's the question we're going to try to answer today. I'm Maggie Lake here with Darius Dale, uh, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. How you doing? Maggie, it's great to see you. How you been? Um, I'm doing well. And I kind of feel like that's the question of the moment. Uh, certainly, you know, at, at this point in the summer with the data coming in, with all these Fed officials who are just constantly in front of the microphone, this seems to be the big question everyone's asking themselves. And there's a lot of disagreement. There doesn't seem to be much consensus. No, not at all. I think you can boil the question down even further to its sort of first principles, which is, is the market going to care about the rate of change of inflation rolling off the peak? Or is the market going to be more concerned uh, about the level of inflation remaining high and persistent um, and ultimately causing the Fed to have to ultimately do more than what's currently priced into the markets? And depending on your answer to that, um, it ultimately determine your asset allocation, your portfolio construction. That's a, that is a fantastic point. And so to be clear, we're, we're talking about like, let's just throw some numbers on it. So if, if inflation, if we're getting, you know, uh, inflation, monthly inflation prints that are, you know, nine or 8.1%, the question is, does the Fed want to see that come down to some absolute number, four, three and a half, or do they just want to see that it's declining in some kind of pattern? Then that's the thing that they'll look at. So traditionally it might be high, at six or seven, but as long as it uh, as the slope is falling, that's what they'll judge policy on. Is that right? Yeah. Well, uh, so I, I tend to be in the camp just based on you know kind of listening to every single word that these people say every single day <laughs> and taking uh, detailed notes on it. It's pretty clear that they have a, a, a set of thresholds that needs to be met. Um, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of financial markets, they want to see a certain set of financial conditions um, uh, tightening objectives achieved, particularly. Uh, achieving a real positive real rates across the curve. Uh, that's something that they were on their way towards um, accomplishing, you know, kind of in late June, early July, but have since kind of moved back in the wrong direction, largely as a function of the easing of financial conditions we've seen throughout July, partially <laughs> driven by Jay Powell's uh, uh, gaffes in the uh, press conference last Wednesday. Uh, but then from a from a structural inflation standpoint, um, they want to see, obviously, longer-term inflation expectations if you look at five-year, five-year, four-break-evens, or if you look at consumer confidence measures 
measures like the um, the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Measure. That's up at 2.9 percent. It's got to get probably close to around 2.5 for them to feel comfortable um, that inflation is back to being re-anchored. But then ultimately, they need to see it, some actual progress in the data. Uh, Brian, if you pull up that chart, um, slide 87 from our macro scouting report, this chart is is pretty damning in the sense that we are moving in the wrong direction. So these are all uh, June prints um, in terms of uh, what we're showing here in the gray bar on, the, on that chart is the uh, prior month over month annualized rate of change. And the blue bar uh, is the, the most recent print, the June uh, month over month annualized uh, inflation print. And as you can see, you know, going across these four indicators, we are very much moving in the wrong direction from a rate of change standpoint. And obviously the levels are way too high to begin with, so we don't have to discuss that. But uh, the first uh, cluster of bars shows the Dallas Fed uh, trim means uh, PCE inflation. That's what Jay Powell started talking about um, last week uh, at 6.9% on a month-on-month -month annualized basis. You know, that's obviously well above where we need to be in terms of 2% for, for, for the target, but that's also the fastest rate we've seen in 40 years. Cleveland Fed median CPI, that 9% annualized is an all-time high. Um, the, the Atlanta Fed sticky CPI at 8%, that's a, or 8.1%, that's the fastest we've seen since January 91. And then lastly, uh, core PCE, which is a you know their sort of unofficial target, if you will, um, at 7.1% month-on-month annualized. That's a, that's a pretty ridiculous number relative to not only their target, but also relative to moving in the wrong direction. Yeah, personal consumption expenditures, basically what we pay for goods and services, right? That's Damn. why they look at it. So a lot of people are saying, okay, well, people have jobs. They can afford it. I mean, this is the worry, right? So as long as you're working, how can we, you know, there's something to worry about in, in terms of inflation. And how can we be in a recession if everyone's got jobs? We have a big jobs number tomorrow, but we had weekly jobless claims today and they rose again. There are more Americans filing for unemployment benefits. So what do we look at when it comes to the labor market? Is it as hot as it seems? Yeah, no, the labor market is still overheating uh, without question. Um, you know, so jobless claims have been inching up you know, since I don't want to say they put it in a bottom in like March, but we've not really seen the kind of movement you would anticipate um, if we were actually sort of heading into what we call an actual recession as opposed to a, a mere technical recession. You know, there's a couple of um, uh, ways you can slice and dice the labor market to understand how tight it is. And ultimately, playing this back into the initial question of the show, which is why we have not seen such a kind of car, car we haven't seen catharsis or capitulation uh, on the behalf of equity and credit markets because we still have an economy that is quote unquote hanging in there. Um, so kind of just unpacking the jobs, we can look at it from a couple of lens, one from a levels and secondarily from a momentum perspective. Um, Brian, if you pull up chart 82, uh, this kind of walks you through some of the levels that uh, investors like myself and the Fed are looking at to understand the labor market dynamics. So the first on uh, that chart 82, the first panel of that chart shows jolts divided by total number of unemployment. So jolts is total job openings. We're at 1.8 in terms of that ratio. That's more, that's double where the sort of ratio trended in the pre-COVID uh, era. Um, the second panel is the private sector crits weight, um, which is about 70 basis points higher uh, than where it trended in the pre-COVID era at 3.1% most recently. And then lastly, in the bottom panel, we got this number last Friday. We got the employment cost index, uh, total compensation for private sector workers um, at 5.5%. That's an all-time high, as you can see in the chart, but it's literally 300 basis points higher than where we trended in the pre-COVID era at 2.5%. So 2.5% um, is consistent with 2.5% core PCE. So clearly we got a problem here uh, from a levels perspective. And the levels-oriented economists at the Fed are going to see that and say, hey, no, this is a labor market that we can very much afford to continue tightening into. 
The second part of that is uh, on slide 83, Brian, uh, where we show a similar analysis, just looking at the labor market from a momentum perspective as well. And as you can see, um, the first cluster of bars where we showed the light blue bar, um, that's the, um, the, the pre-COVID trend in that particular indicator, first cluster of bars is private payrolls growth, showing everything on a three-month annualized basis. And the dark blue bars um, is the most recent prints of the June jobs report. Um, as you can see, we're double the pre-COVID trend in terms of the three-month annualized rate of change of private payrolls. Move over one, we're double the pre-month, the pre-COVID trend in terms of average hourly earnings. And then move over two, you go to the far right cluster of bars and you, some, you, know, you aggregate all those statistics, you wind up with aggregate private sector um, labor income. And at 8%, we're effectively double where we've trended in the pre-COVID trend. So no matter how you slice and dice the labor market, this is one that is uh, Fed should feel very comfortable and confident in terms of tightening into the slowdown in growth. So, you know, we we have seen, and certainly those in the camp who think that things are slowing down and this is a transition. That's why you've got this. You've still got labor market, but maybe some of that lags. And if you look at things like ISM, which we know a lot of people, you know, in the analyst community look at, that's starting to show things slowing down. And some of the manufacturing surveys. Does that indicate that we're in a transition and we're not sure if we're entering a recession? Or do you think all of that stuff, again, even if it's decelerating, is strong enough to withstand, to show that the economy is robust enough to withstand these rate hikes? Because clearly the Fed must see that. Yeah, no, totally. And and look, the Fed... As Jay Powell's has consistently sort of reiterated that they're comfortable with the slowdown. He more or less kind of confirmed that they're comfortable with the recession um, um, in order to get inflation under control. So I don't, I don't think that I think you could remove the Fed from this particular aspect of the debate. I think the real aspect is going back to the investors. Investors, there's two camps of investors right now. There's the rate of change investors that look forward and see an economy slowing and a Fed tightening into that. And then there's the sort of Levels-oriented investors, you use the word robust, which I think is a very important word to use at this particular time. If you look around, the labor market is very robust. Corporate earnings, you know, they're slowing, but they're still very robust, um, certainly on an expectations base relative to expectations in Q2. Um, so you're looking around, you're still seeing robust levels of, of, of economic activity, you know, looking through the nominal lens in particular. Um, but then when you obviously look at it on a rate of change basis, and oh, by the way, that ISM services print uh, from yesterday was just rocks this rock solid. I mean, you had a basically new orders pushing to 60, um, you know, a big, you know, big reacceleration uh, where it all mattered. And so, you know, it's very clearly that the economy, the real economy is not yet fallen off a cliff, um, but it's certainly moving in that direction when you look at some of the leading indicators, right? Um, obviously, housing, this, you know, the most leading sector in the economy is already in recession. You know, you look at the three month annualized. Uh, growth rates of things like housing starts, building permits at down 40%. Um, you know, you look at something like ISM new, uh, new orders minus inventories, you know, that's putting us at somewhere between 38. So you just look at the ongoing tightening in liquidity conditions, Fed continuing to hike, uh, balance sheet continuing to contract. And ultimately, the rate shock that we've accumulated through the first half of this year will have ramifications on a lagged basis over the next few quarters. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. 
So this is such an interesting conversation because it's giving us a different question to look at, which I think is really important and maybe um, is going to be easier for us to all track. Um, And that is the rate of change people are in the camp that the Fed's going to pivot because they're going to start to see deceleration. The absolute level people are saying, listen, as long as it remains strong, there's room and the Fed's going to keep going. There was a really interesting thread on Twitter that caught our eye. And I I think it kind of speaks to this. Um, And it was, I think, a screenshot. Lynn Alton tweeted it out, but I think it's a screenshot of a couple of um, tweets that went out right in a row from her, from Al, from Adam, suggesting that basically the Fed is willing to sacrifice jobs. They intend to weaken the labor market until they kill it, until they get inflation under control. That sounds like there's a lot more downside, Darius. And based on what you're saying, there's a lot more pain in the economy and they're going to go until we're in recession. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, that's that's our base case view um, is that, you know, because the Fed is sort of operating on a, on a lag, they're, 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 they're using variables that lag the broader economic and market cycle um, to guide their um, to guide their policy. You know, they're anchoring and, you know, Powell sort of uh, sort of pined on this last week. And then we got um, Daly, uh, Evans, we got Bullard, um, who else do we have for? And, and Mester out this week sort of confirming that, hey, look, yeah, everything's robust. We're going to keep hiking. You know, we haven't made enough progress yet. And so, you know, the, the problem with, you know, kind of guiding policy through the lens of the labor market and through the lens of inflation is both of those things are very, you know, sort of late cycle. They're lagging the broader economic cycle, and they're extremely procyclical. So um, it sort of sets you up for a scenario this fall and into this winter where the Fed is still tightening policy, and markets don't really won't want them to be still tightening policy. Right now, things are again, as we discussed, are robust enough for investors to sort of, you know, kind of look around and say, maybe we overpriced too much in at the June lows, which I don't disagree with, not the least of which, you know, the inflection in the net liquidity cycle, which we can touch on later in the discussion. Um, but eventually we're going to have to come back to the, the, the chickens will come home to roost on the broader cycle, because again, you're setting up for a increasing divergence between policy tightening and the economy. And right now that divergence is somewhat narrow, but it's only going to get more and more um, divergent over time. And, you know, welcome to the conversation. Great questions coming in from Tom, Yo-Yo, Mark, Gank, DD. We're going to get to them in a second. So there's a there. We talked about that that tension between the Fed and the bond market. The bond market's mis mispriced right now. It sounds like you're saying. Uh, I don't disagree with that. Or, sorry, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, let's be honest. Because they're here. thinking think anybody... they're going to pivot. Yeah. So let's. Uh, so. Uh, the bond market, I would separate the bond market from the money market. So the money markets, you know, euro dollars, uh, overnight index swaps, Fed fund futures, they're sort of pricing in kind of a December, the last hike being in December, and ultimately the Fed starting to fade and, and um, you know, cuts by, let's call it uh, uh, May uh, of May of next year. Um, so that's kind of the, the central modal outcome. Uh, you may look at euro dollars at somewhere around March of next year. Um, do I think that's probably wrong? Based on everything I know today, I would say I would fade that. I would say the curve is probably underpriced relative to the kind of policy rate um, um, uh, shocks we're going to continue to receive. And and, and and as a function of that, we're probably going to have the Fed's balance sheet contracting uh, for longer um, and the net liquidity function uh, contracting for longer. Because again, as long as the Fed continues to hike the policy rate in an era, in a, in a sort of environment where there's a scarcity of T-bills, it's very likely we continue to see the reverse repo uh, facility balance climb as well. So that is usually a negative sign for liquidity. 
Um, as it relates to the bond, bond market, I think there's a real debate. There's a very interesting debate in, in financial markets right now, which I think is as important as the debate on where do risk assets go, which is what's the neutral Fed funds rate? You know, Powell sort of outlined last week that 2.5% is neutral. And, you know, I would be in the Larry Summers camp, Olivier Blanchard camp that says, you know, that's just wrong. You know, we're talking about no matter what metric you're looking at, you know, you're talking about if it's if it's trim mean PCE inflation, which Fed uh, Powell's now anchoring on, if it's median inflation, both of those statistics are somewhere between 200 and 400 basis points higher than they were in Q418 when Powell said neutral was 2.5. And so we may have to go through a process over the next few months of discussing, discussing and debating whether or not neutral is in fact 2.5. And if we see anything that looks like a positive revision to that, then the entire yield curve has to shift higher. Um, so it may be the case that um, you know we haven't necessarily seen um, the ultimate lows in bonds, but ultimately we do believe that the more the Fed prioritizes fighting inflation to save the bond market implicitly, they're effectively sort of sacrificing the economy and the equity market and credit markets on the other side of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so important, Darius, and you know, great example. And we're going to kind of keep digging into that. Let's jump into the questions because I think some of them will help us tease out some of that. So. As we're talking about this, the Bank of England, it's not just the U.S., we're talking about central banks around the world on this inflation fight. Um, the Bank of England raised rates by a half point today, biggest hike in 25 years, at the same time said economy's going into recession, a long one, maybe the worst one since the great financial crisis. I mean, that's mm -hmm. pretty harrowing. Yo-Yo asking, how long do you see the USA recession based on the BOE's comment of more than a year, you know, are we looking at a, a severe, because the Fed's going to do it until they get inflation under control, are we looking at a long recession here as well? Uh, you'd be a fool, and I would be a fool to answer that question with any specificity, so I'm not going to. Um, you know, but almost by definition, a recession is impossible to predict uh, because it's such a, a statistically significant deviation from any model you know, on a, on a sample basis that you could train it on. So it's not possible, in my opinion. I've, by the way, I've tried trying for the last 14 years to build these kinds of models. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you really can't do it. What you can do is identify the conditions that are in place that will put you in a, a significantly negative econo enough economic state to see the legitimate actual recession. I mean, you obviously need to be coming off a very high level of, of total employment, a very low level of unemployment. Um, and obviously, you typically need a significant amount of financial. You need some sort of shock whether it be through energy, whether it be through fiscal policy contraction, or whether it be through monetary tightening. And, you know, unfortunately, we've had all three. So we can assume that the recession risk is very much rising, which we can imminently observe by the collapsing three-month, 10-year uh, yield curve. I think we're somewhere around 27, 28 basis points. We were at 200 basis points in that yield curve like two months ago, three months mm -hmm. ago. So this, the, clearly the markets are very um, uh, concerned about recession, but um, I don't know if I even answered the question. But the question no, I, no, I, yeah. I think you did. And I think this is a, a really good place to interject something. So, and we have a, you know, we have a couple of these questions coming in, you know, like, where do you see the S&P? All of this, no one has a crystal ball to these answers, right? Especially when you're in this really hard transition period. I think what you do and a lot of the people um, you know, analysts, fund managers, Rao talks about this all the time, is is try to get the best probability, right? No one has an absolute answer, but it's a game of probabilities at this point. What are you looking at? What do you think's leading? And what is your best case scenario? What's the risk, you know, the risk reward 
uh, trade-off, right? So this is, you're, we're talking in probabilities when you're answering these questions. Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, I'll be the first person to tell you, I'm not sure a lot of folks uh, like who do what I do for a living will get on a show and tell you that we were ill-positioned for the full distribution of probable outcomes going in, uh, in June. I mean, that's what I was, I was saying, like we finished June, or at least, you know, my personal assets that I that I manage um, track our, our 42 macro portfolio construction. And, you know, we were up, you know, just shy of 9% by the end of June and I'm looking at up 2% um, here in, in, in early August. And that was a significant drawdown. And the reason for that was because we overly allocated to the narrow, sort of the negatively side of the distribution that was calling for more negative economic outcomes sooner, more tightening uh, relative to the market pricing. We still think those are the modal outcomes. It's just that we did we ill position for the broad set of distribution and the other part of the distribution, which I believe is a little bit more uh, symmetrically um, symmetrically shaped relative to uh, to what we initially thought in, in, in June, which is if you're a levels oriented investor, which, you know, there's a lot of folks who kind of think about the world in, 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 in first derivative terms, growth is really high nominally. The labor market is really strong. Uh, if you if you believe Jay Powell, then the labor the economy can withstand rate hikes, and there is this quote unquote narrow path to a soft landing. And so, um, you know, you have to tip your cap to understanding that hey, look, we probably overpriced the left tail of the distribution um, in June, and I would argue probably somewhere around forty two fifty on the S and P, we're probably overpricing the right tail of the distribution. At the end of the day, the markets are going to go where they're going to go, and we think six nine months forward. We're going to be talking about things that look a lot more recessionary and a lot less robust on a first derivative basis. Yeah. Timing is really difficult. And this is why it's super important to size your risk because mm -hmm. everybody's going to be in that situation and you could be wrong for the right reasons. The timing can be off. And this is something that we talk about in the academy. There's a whole section on, you know, being able to make sure that you're sized appropriately for risk. So when you get it wrong, you live to fight another day, which obviously you're going to be able to do. So we have a question on this, Darius. Tom, both Tom and Mark asking about stocks in the bear market rally. Tom said this bear market rally and hints of softening inflation with the softening economy seem to be making Darius rethink his conviction on a deep market sell-off, or at least that's what I hear in his voice. Where do you see, where does Darius see the balance of probabilities? Thank you, Tom. Probabilities over the next six months. Hey, no, that's a great question, Tom. I appreciate the uh, the, 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 the kind of contextualization of the question. Um, so I'll first by start by saying you should hear nothing in my voice. I mean, everything, every view we have is eminently articulated and, 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 and perfectly articulated in every piece of research that we put out. Um, you know, we have our portfolio construction, which again, I use to manage my, all my liquid net worth. So, um, all of my views are very explicit and very, uh, uh, ironed out. So if it sounds like I'm saying something different then you're over, you're reading too far into it. So that's, that's point number one. Um, as it relates to just sort of the general outlook, I still think the modal outcome is the U.S. economy tipping in something that looks like a, a real recession, like an actual recession, if only because we believe there's a stickiness and a persistence to the inflation, particularly on the core inflation side, which we discussed and talked about earlier, uh, that will cause the Fed to increasingly diverge from where markets are going to want them to go from a policy standpoint. Um, it now may be the case that Look, again, I think there's this real debate in financial markets right now about what is the neutral rate? Is this Fed really serious? They technically can't truly be serious if they think the neutral is at 2.5 and they're only going to go to a little bit past neutral. So we're going to have to learn in the next couple of months if they're A, going to revise up that neutral rate or B, going to tell us that they're comfortable taking it way beyond neutral in order to get the job done. If they do either of those two things, then I think we're going to be ultimately proven right on our central thesis 
which is the Fed is hiking for too long, for hiking too much, or not hiking, just tightening, tightening for too much and for too long relative to an economy that is, in fact, slowing down if you look at it at leading indicators terms. Yeah. And and by the way, there are some people who think we're already in recession. Um, they're not waiting for the technical and that you're going to start to see that show up. But that's a, that's another thing that that is, you know, up for debate. I, so, I mean, I've, I've seen the analysis and I think um, Jim Bianco, who I have uh, the, the utmost respect for, is one of the best investors uh, in the world, in my opinion. Um, I, I, I would tend to be on the other side of the view that, um, you know, that even though we're seeing robust job growth, that we're still probably technically in recession you're still seeing a, like the sort of coincident to lagging indicators are still very robust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, will they get very unrobust three to six months from now? Probably just if you look at the compendium of leading indicators, it's very likely that they could become unrobust. So when at the end of the day, I think we're we're spending too much time on debate, discussing and debating whether we get a recession, how long it's going to last, how deep it is. Ultimately, we need to understand the the fundamental principle of why you should be negative on risk assets from a medium term perspective, like three, six, nine months from now, is because the Fed is tightening into a slowdown. Whether or not it's recession or not is it is 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 neither here nor there. Now, you whether we go into recession does ultimately have a impact in terms of the size of the drawdowns, but we've done a tremendous amount of work on this um, empirically. Yes, it's kind of correlated with the size of the equity drawdown, but it's not correlated enough to expect that, hey, if we get a mild recession, we have to get a mild uh, equity drawdown or credit market drawdown. Or if we get a deep one, we got to get a deep drawdown. Well, you usually do. But you know, when you're talking about anything between mild and moderate recession, the the, the 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 distribution is all over the place. So it's not like you can use that to to manage risk. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. DT has a really interesting question slash point. Did retail actually beat the smart money by refusing to sell and buying the dip? And there has been this really interesting dichotomy because you've had funds lightening up on their stock exposure, equity exposure, and you see those sentiments coming out and they were bearish, And but you had retail hold firm and people yeah. were kind of scratching their heads saying, what's going on? Uh, any thoughts on that, Darius? Yeah, I mean, I'm just pulling this up now, so- the SPY is down 14% from its highs. Bitcoin's down 63% from its highs. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not, I would not consider that to be a, a smart decision. Um, yeah. If I could avoid a, 50, a 14 to 65% drawdown of my own money, which I'm trying to do every day, then no, that I don't think that's the smart thing to do. Um, also, I mean, the question also assumes that retail <laughs> bought the dip at the blows of June. I mean, the more likely it is that they sold the, the lows in June. I mean, that's yeah. unfortunate. That, that that tends to be the case. But I mean, at the end of the day, this market is, is you know, I, if you put a gun to my head, what do I think happened? I think we got too far ahead of ourselves pricing in a recession in June that may not materialize for another six to nine months. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, the markets, you know, they have a funny way of of, of of collecting bodies from both sides of the trade, bulls and bears alike, along the way to ultimately pricing in what they need to price in. So um, like I said, you know, 
I've drawn, we've drawn down in the last sort of four to six weeks. I'm still up a lot more than the average person who didn't uh, make the decisions we made earlier this year and going back to the fall of last year. So I'm very comfortable uh, with how we're sitting here at 42 Macro. Yeah, I have to get, we'll have to ping a uh, Ms. Schneider. Has up a great is better chart. than down a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She has a great chart about if you, if you kind of hold through the drawdowns, how long it takes to recoup that. She feels really strongly about that as well, Darren. I'll tweet it out. I did. I, I have a chart like that. I'll you have that chart too? Yeah, that might be worth because we were really taught to sort of try to, if you're a long-term investor, try to block out the noise, don't get hung up in these kind of market moves. But, you know, the, the that that may not be true when when you see this and when you see the drawdowns and you do the math out about what it takes to, but it's how hard. Long did, it, it's how long really, did it take for the NASDAQ to recoup its highs from 2000? Yeah. It was like 15 years or something like yeah. that. I mean, I'm not saying we're going to be under underwater for 15 years. I would imagine once the Fed pivots, um, which again, we think is a, a Q1 event of next year, we're probably going to start to, to, to trade higher, um, yeah. if, especially if the liquidity you know, cycle gets gets inflected in a material way. But again, these are these are things. This is something I also want to bring up. You know, I've heard, um, you know, a lot of uh, sort of, you know, I've heard everything in the last six weeks, right? Everyone's trying to figure out why is the market going up? People were at the same, you know, the lows are trying to figure out why the market's going down, the bulls were. And ultimately, you know, I think the kind of central narrative on like, you know, what, the, why the market is up from a fundamental standpoint, I think the reason it's up is actually just quants are chasing it. But mm -hmm. from a fundamental standpoint, if you want to attach a narrative to it, it's that we got too far ahead of ourselves in terms of pricing in a recession. And then some people would take that and say, no, we actually did price in the recession. Therefore, that was the low. You got to think about uh, expanding your, your your risk profile. That's the kind of the Tom Lee view of the world. And, I, you know, one, I obviously disagree with it from a fundamental standpoint. But even if that is correct, you know, that requires a tremendous amount of sort of uh, forward lookingness, if you will. I don't have a word for this. Uh, that markets have traditionally not exhibited in, in, the, in the past. I mean, you're talking about a market that is effectively pricing in a Fed pivot that may not be, let's call it six to nine months away, that's pricing in a bottom in growth that may not be nine to 12 months away. And this is the same market that in January at the all-time highs thought growth was going to be above trend in 2022 and that the Fed was only going to hike two or three times in 2022. So I just don't believe the same collection of market participants is suddenly like living that far in the future. Yeah, suddenly I, predictive you know. out that that long, which would be totally. a departure from historicals. But this is what we always wonder, is this time different? I mean, that's the, always the trick, the, the, the line that kind of gets us. By the way, you but, but in the last couple of minutes we have, you mentioned um, Bitcoin. You know, we saw that big bump. So even though stocks are kind of struggling as we head through this Fed talk and jobs, we saw a big move in Coinbase um, after the exchange announced a partnership with Black. BlackRock that will allow institutional clients to buy Bitcoin. Um, by the way, you know it moved because BlackRock has what like an eight trillion dollars under management, heck of a lot of money. Any thoughts on that? Would you expect there to be a reaction? We also have some news with other things going on in the crypto world, and we we did see crypto Bitcoin down today. Um, what do you think about that institutional participation? Yeah, no, it's extremely extremely positive structurally. Um, you know, the easier you make it for institutions to allocate to this asset class, which I think um, in an environment where we're going to have structurally higher inflation and an environment where the Fed may be ultimately forced to revise its inflation target higher, um, you're going to have a, a sort of a what could be structural outflows or structural under allocation to bonds relative to where we've been in the most recent decade. And so uh, anything you can do to make it easier for institutions to access that asset class is going to be very, very positive. Now, there's a little bit of horizon, investment horizon mismatch there. Just because yeah. BlackRock is, you know, partnering with Coinbase today doesn't necessarily mean institutions want to buy Bitcoin today. Today, um, you know, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so you have to understand that, hey, this is structurally bullish, 
but it may not be cyclically bullish because again, there's things that are driving it from a cyclical perspective, liquidity cycle, the growth yeah. outlook. Sentiment. Hey, Darius, I want to squeeze one more in because I, as I scan down here, we've got a bunch of questions coming in um, from John, from Brian, from Honey. Uh, gold, why is gold up today? Uh, that's a why pass. Today. <laughs> why is gold up today? Pass. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why gold is up today. Who knows? Because <laughs> more there are more buyers than sellers. That's the answer. Yeah. And and yeah. biotech. Yeah, listen, this is what in 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 markets. By the way, it's also August, so sometimes in thin markets we see big moves too. So, but thank you for those questions, and we're gonna keep looking into that and asking because we have, as you know, we have some dedicated gold bugs who are part of the Real Vision uh, community I, uh, who I'm sure would love to take a swing at that. So you, um, duly you, you noted, everyone. Uh, we'll chase that down. Exactly. I appreciate that. Um, so you you mentioned one thing before we wrap up, like, is this time different? And, you know, we've done a tremendous amount of work at 42 Macro on trying to identify what are the series of catalysts that typically happen in and around a bear market bottom. Um, you know, there've been 17 bear markets since the, um, since the, you know, the onset of the Great Depression. Um, so kind of looking at the last hundred years of, of economic and financial market data, um, I won't give all the conclusions away out of respect for our paying customers. But, you know, if you put up that chart, uh, slide 145, Brian, you know, kind of the, the genesis of the analysis is sort of looking at three things. You know, when does the market trip traditionally bottom in terms of the inflection and the inflation cycle? Pink line inflection in the the black the, the growth cycle black line and inflection in the liquidity cycle which is the red line, and you know uh, without being specific you know because I don't want to give away the crown jewel but typically markets bottom after the inflection in the liquidity cycle after the inflection in the inflation cycle and then after the inflection in the growth cycle so you typically need to see some activity out of the Fed that is causing uh, investors to sort of take risk um, if you go to slide one forty six so if you look at the slide on one forty five obviously the red line the Fed funds rate We've seen no inflection in the in the in the in the liquidity cycle. Um, clearly, have not seen an inflection in in in, uh, in a durable inflection in the net liquidity as well. If you look at slide one forty six, and I tell you this, if there's one thing keeping me up at night, it is this chart, which is when you swap the red line in that chart from the Fed funds rate to the one year one month forward OIS rate, or you could use any forward rate measure um, in terms of forward policy rates. You know, Fed fund futures, et cetera. It did inflect literally on the lows of the S&P and has been trending lower since then. So you have to wonder, has this sort of this interjection of forward guidance into the market function, into the market response function uh, out of policymakers, has that now pushed us further into the kind of living in the future in terms of the forward, uh, the willingness of investors to price in these types of outcomes? Now, that creates more risk. Like if that projection is wrong, you're going to have a lot more gap risk to the downside on markets. But to me, I think this is kind of the number one thing outside of the the the, the neutral Fed funds rate discussion. This is also kind of one B on, hey, did we actually get the pivot because the market thinks we got the pivot, mm -hmm. even though we didn't really get the pivot? And I think that's yeah. something we're going to debate for the next several weeks. Awesome. Great, great stuff to think about, Darius. Thank you so much. Um, good questions that we're going to continue to mine. Uh, we appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for the great questions. We'll, the ones we didn't get to, we'll take it up and we'll continue the conversation. So join us again. We'll be here same time tomorrow. I'll be back with Jeffrey Schultz, the director at ClearBridge. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. Take care of each other. Cheers. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're
a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.